The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. A lot of people ask me about the genesis of Fahrenheit 451. What was I up to? Where did I live? What was I doing? Well, I lived in Venice, California with my wife and a little $30 a month apartment. We had no money and my wife got pregnant and I went to New York and managed to find enough money to finance us for a while. But in the meantime, I was writing short stories. I wrote a story called The Pedestrian because I had an encounter with a policeman one night who asked me what I was doing. I was walking with a friend and I said to the policeman, I'm putting one foot after the other, which was the wrong answer, you know. Very suspicious being a pedestrian walking and because I looked at the sidewalks this way and that and there's nobody except me and my friend. So the policeman reprimanded me and I promised never to walk again and I went home in a rage and I wrote this short story called The Pedestrian and it was published finally and then I took The Pedestrian out for a walk one night in another story and he turned the corner and he bumps into a little girl named Clarice McClellan and she sniffs the air and she says to him, I know who you are, you're the fireman, you're the man that burns books. And nine days later, Fahrenheit 451 was done. Mm, That was author Ray Bradbury talking about the genesis of his classic fantasy novel, Fahrenheit 451, which imagines a world where firemen start fires and books are freely burned. We'll be talking to a fan of Ray Bradbury, author Carolyn Cohagen, whose own works are Bradbury-esque in their vivid fever dream quality and the perspicacity of her psychological portraits. A conversation with Carolyn Cohagen about her writing, her background as a stand-up comic and a theater impresario, and the foundation she founded, Girls with Pens, a creative writing workshop for girls. And we'll also dive into the reasons why she admires the works of the 20th century giant of sci-fi slash fantasy fiction, Ray Bradbury. All that today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Lots to cover today, so let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you could join us today. Ray Bradbury. He's a little hard to label, mostly because he himself rejected labels. He's one of those great writers from the 50s and 60s, that Twilight Zone era. Rod Serling himself being a perfect example, although he and Ray Bradbury had their differences. They had kind of a falling out. Anyway, that was the era where writers seemed to say, hey, we can identify real-world problems, real-world issues, and then we can invent scenarios, sometimes fantastical ones, that will expose those real-world issues and really illuminate the psychology of humans. If we can get at some deep, universal truths, we can show people something new about humanity. We can pique the audience's interest, excite their imagination, titillate them, but also convey something fresh and true and important. We can talk about politics, but by politics here, I mean something bigger and broader and more universal than just the latest issue or any specific policies. I mean larger themes like, what is our relationship with the state? What does it mean to be a citizen? What does it mean to be a human being? 
What does it mean to be an individual living in a society? That's the kind of fish that they were casting for. And they were doing it with these wonderful stories that exaggerated some elements of reality in ways that made you think. These writers knew that trick. By focusing on the unreal, they could get at something very real. We will get into all of that with our wonderful guest today, Carolyn Cohagen, who is herself an excellent writer and who works in this spirit. This is a fun one, and because this sent me down the Ray Bradbury rabbit hole, we'll start with some of his background, a fascinating life and career for a true classic author. We haven't done a whole lot of science fiction or fantasy fiction, but I am open to the possibilities. Our Kurt Vonnegut show might be the best example we've had so far. But first, let's start with an email. Subject line, no, no knocking. (laughs) Isn't this where we're supposed to be interrupted? There's no knocking at the door. No interruptions today. Okay. We don't even hear our friend the cricket who we heard last time. He was popular. In fact, I got a few emails suggesting that we make him a regular guest. I don't think that's going to happen. On the other hand, It might be out of my control. He starts up as soon as he hears me talk. I think he has a little pal in there now, somewhere in the crawl space. He's hiding from the rain, and he's invited a friend in there. They are fiddling together like a couple of Appalachians on their porch. Play me some Devil Went Down to Georgia, my cricket friends. Nothing. Not even the sound of crickets. Maybe they need to practice that one. Or maybe they are indifferent to the requests of an audience. Maybe they don't have that need to please, that desperate need for praise, and to share that praise with the world. Only the most desperate, lonely of people, the true dregs of society, would feel a compulsion like that. So on to the email, which is, as always, is very flattering. Subject. History of Literature Podcast Fan. That was my tea. Got an email from someone who said, how come you never drink tea on the air anymore? Well, there you go. I aim to please. Hello, Jack. My name is Patrick, and I'm a 28-year-old urban planner living in Toronto, Ontario. I've contemplated writing on a few occasions, but after listening to your latest episode on Herman Melville, I could no longer resist. I've had a copy of Moby Dick sitting on my bookshelf for a couple of years now, and I think this episode gave me the push I needed to finally sit down and read it. The segment that caught my attention, however, was your final question posed on this episode. If you could have one author read their work to you in a setting of your choice, what would it be? For me, I think it would have to be either Hemingway reading A Movable Feast at a cafe in Montparnasse, or Fitzgerald reading The Great Gatsby at a lonely, sweeping mansion on the Long Island North Shore. As you might have guessed, I have a soft spot for the 1920s and the lost generation. Oh, boy. This surprise bonus question from Herman Melville, that, listeners, is the gift that keeps on giving. For those who missed it, I asked our guest Christina, who had listened to the entire novel Moby Dick on board an actual whaling vessel as part of the Mystic Seaport Melville Marathon, including the beginning and end, read by an author dressed as Herman Melville. I asked if she could choose any book read by its author in a perfect setting, which would she choose and where? I'm getting some great tweets and emails about this. Feel free to send me yours as well. Now, back to the email. 
I was a bit of a late bloomer in my journey through classic literature. I was always a reader growing up with the Harry Potter series, but this faded as I entered high school and was told what books to read and what I was supposed to think about them. Oh, oh Patrick, that's the worst. That's not what literature is about. Email continues. Though my through my university years, I always had so many assigned readings that reading for pleasure never seemed within the realm of possibility. It wasn't until I entered graduate school in Toronto and found myself with subway rides to and from class every day that I decided I could fill this time with books. Since this time, I've been chipping away at the seemingly insurmountable lists of books I want to read so I can consider myself a well-read person found the podcast about a year ago, and your insights have been extremely helpful and allowed me narrow my list in some allowed me to narrow my list in some places, but also forced it to grow in others. Through book suggestions that seem to be must-haves on every well-read person's list. I enjoy the thoughtful insights that you provide on the texts and the authors and the obvious joy that you take in arguing points with frequent guest Mike Palindrome. All this is to say, since this journey of mine began, I have always been drawn to the prospect of writing my own novel or even short story, but between working a full-time job, having a social life, and trying to read all the books I can in my spare time, I constantly find it difficult to sit down and put words on the page. Despite having what I believe is a strong idea that could translate well on the page, I just can't seem to get more than a hundred words here or there on the rare moments when I do find time and inspiration. Any writing tips or suggestions would be greatly appreciated. Please keep up the great work. I'm especially looking forward to your upcoming discussions on Ray Bradbury and The Sun Also Rises, one of my all-time favorites. All the best, Patrick. Well, Patrick, I'm glad you've been enjoying the show, and thank you for the email. I'd love to hear that people are getting back into the reading game, and I'm honored that I've been playing a small part in that. So, writing tips. Here's the good news. A hundred words here or there. Don't discount that power. If you make the words count, they will add up. Graham Greene wrote 500 words a day, and that was it. 500 words of fiction, and then he would stop, even in mid-sentence. Raymond Carver used to write while waiting for his laundry to come out of the dryer. Sometimes he'd go out into his car for 15 minutes of quiet and write there. Build it into your routine. Write every day, and then... You can do all your thinking about writing. After you've finished catching up on the History of Literature podcast, you can daydream on the subway. Think about your story or your novel or whatever you're working on. What's going to happen next? How should the words sound when I get that 15 minutes? When I'm putting pen to paper? How do I want to use that time well? What needs to happen in my story? How should the words sound? See? In that way... You won't be facing writer's block. You'll have 24 hours to come up with the best way to use that 15 minutes or 30 minutes if you can spare it. Should be easier that way. You get the next bite-sized chunk in your mind. You think it through. You make sure the characters are doing something believable. Make sure they're acting how those characters would act. And then when you sit down to write, it should go more smoothly because you have all that idle thought behind it. Except it wasn't idle at all. It was pre-writing, and it will be very useful, and it will have the side benefit of making your day more interesting. Good luck to you, and when you are in Stockholm collecting your Nobel Prize, 
tell them Jack Wilson sent you. I was acknowledged in a book once. Have I have I told this story before? My apologies if I have. I spent a year helping a woman write her manuscript. I really dug into the science, the research that she was working on. I became like an expert in her field. She came into my office every week. I I poured through the new pages. I wrote and rewrote much of it, frankly. You are like the co-author, she said. And I would laugh and keep helping. And then publication day came and she came into my office with the book and she was so proud. She set it on the desk in front of me with tears in her eyes. You, it's you, she said, sobbing with joy. And here, I thanked you. So I turned to the acknowledgments page and I saw that she thanked her advisor and her colleagues and all these other people, all these names of people I had never heard of. And hey, no Jack Wilson. So I thought maybe she had gone further. Maybe she had dedicated the book to me. So I flipped the pages looking for a dedication, but no. Finally, I looked back up and I'm sorry, I just, I don't see it. And she pointed to the part on the acknowledgments page, the sentence that said, and many others who helped. And she said, that's you. You're the many other. (laughs) I was the many other. Maybe that's the story of my life. Jack Wilson, the ultimate many other. Ray Bradbury and Carolyn Cohagen. After this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Ray Bradbury was born in 1920 in Waukegan, Illinois. But before we get there, I want to travel to a different place and a different time. Let's go 300 years before then to England where a young woman named Mary Perkins was born in the year 1615. She left the land of Shakespeare and Dunn and Milton and sailed to America with her family, 
1631, searching for religious freedom and a new start. In 1636, she got married to one of Massachusetts's most distinguished citizens. She lived a long life there in Massachusetts, a pioneer life in a pioneer community. And in 1692, when she was 77 years old, she was accused of witchcraft. In particular, she was charged with, quote, certain detestable arts called witchcraft and sorceries wickedly, maliciously, and feloniously used, practiced, and exercised, end quote. The witchcraft had allegedly afflicted one Timothy Swan, who, quote, Upon the 26th day of July, aforesaid, and divers other days and times, both before and after, was and is tortured, afflicted, consumed, pined, wasted, and tormented. End quote. Witnesses came forward to say that Mary had assumed animal forms and cast spells upon ships. More than a hundred neighbors and townspeople testified on her behalf, insisting that she was not a witch. It did not help. She was found guilty of practicing magic and sentenced to be executed. It was a surreal moment in American history, these Salem witch trials, the moment when the great religious experiment blew up in America's face. Religious freedom had turned into something harsher, something fundamentalist and judgmental and paranoid and exclusionary. It was an inquisition. It was mass paranoia. It was the court's infested with terror and superstition and losing sight of fairness and rules of evidence and common sense and justice. Many people were killed. Mary escaped the gallows. Nobody is sure quite why. Some say the fervor for killing had died down at that point. Others say she bribed a jailer. In any case, she lived for eight more years and died at the age of 85. But her story doesn't end there. She had 11 children, and they had children, and the children of her children had children, and so on. Her line would continue. Her grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren went on to make their mark. Linda Hamilton, who played Sarah Connor in The Terminator, is a descendant, as was Christopher Reeve, the actor who played Superman. Bradbury Robinson was another great-grandson six times down the line. He was famous for throwing American football's first forward pass. If we include her great-grandnephews, we see Humphrey Bogart and at least three presidents, Millard Fillmore, Calvin Coolidge, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But for now, let's stick to her direct line, because one of her great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren was in the world of literature, someone who lived there in Massachusetts, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And another one, a seventh great-grandson who was born in Illinois and who moved to Los Angeles and became a famous writer because Mary Perkins had gotten married to a Thomas Bradbury and her seventh great-grandson was none other than our subject for today, Ray Bradbury, born in Illinois in 1920. Ray Bradbury had a few simple and abiding pleasures in his life. He loved libraries. He loved them even more than college or university. He himself had grown up immersed in the Waukegan, Illinois Library, where he donated his own book collection after he died. Libraries are for kids who can't always afford college, he said. He loved books early and often, especially action stories like Jules Verne 
and Edgar Rice Burroughs and H.G. Wells and Edgar Allan Poe. He started writing stories himself at age 11 and followed his heroes, writing imitations of horror stories like Poe and stories set on Mars like Edgar Rice Burroughs. When he began writing, it was the middle of the Great Depression, and he wrote on the only paper he could get his hands on, butcher paper. I love this part of his story. My own grandparents were growing up at the same time in almost the same place, about 80 miles to the northwest. Their habit for using butcher paper continued well beyond the Great Depression into the 70s and 80s. I used to get Christmas presents wrapped in white butcher paper with the to and from lines written in pen or marker or grease pencil right on the wrapping. Bradbury's family headed to Los Angeles and Beverly Hills. Bradbury kept reading, now branching out into science fiction, and he found himself at a meeting of the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society, which he quickly began attending as often as he could. He was 17 now and writing every day, which he continued throughout his life. The origin story of his writing every day has kind of a fantastical element to it. He claimed that he went to a carnival when he was young, 11 or 12, a carnival entertainer named Mr. Electrico, or, wait, did I say named (laughs) Mr. Electrico? Should I say named or called here? I don't think he was actually named Mr. Electrico. He was called that. He called himself that, I assume. If it wasn't a stage name, It was the luckiest bit of naming in history because his job as Mr. Electrico was to touch kids with an electrified sword and fry them to bits. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. It was to touch them with his electrified sword and make their hair stand on end. He did this with Ray Bradbury and said, live forever. And Bradbury felt something more than just eternal life and electricity charging through him. He felt as if he'd been given the permission, or maybe the mandate, or maybe the magic, to write full-time, which he then did. He wrote and wrote and wrote, and he got good at writing, and by the end of his life, he had written something like 27 novels and more than 600 short stories. He was one of those crossover writers who could write fantastical ideas. He always preferred the label fantasy fiction rather than science fiction which he thought described the bulk of his works better. But in these science fiction or fantasy stories, he could focus on the human side of things, the psychology. His ideas came from looking at society, recognizing tendencies or foibles in human nature, and studying how they would surface even in the most unlikely of worlds. The world of men, he wrote, and not machines. I think that was his shorthand for what he meant, that he wasn't concerned with piling on detail after detail of how the science would work. He wasn't writing a science textbook or devising an elaborate world. He was writing about the men and women and children in those worlds. He liked the way Jules Verne did this. Quote, He believes the human being is in a strange situation in a very strange world, and he believes that we can triumph by behaving morally. End quote. That's a good summary of Bradbury's works, too. And he was a beautiful storyteller and prose stylist. He read loads of poetry, looking for people who could communicate their meaning effectively and efficiently. He was influenced by Robert Frost and Shakespeare and Steinbeck and Thomas Wolfe, the early one, not the one in the white suit. Also, Catherine Ann Porter and Aldous Huxley and Edith Wharton. He loved Eudora Welty and said she had a remarkable ability 
to give you atmosphere, character, and motion in a single line. He learned. He learned from books and from writers. And his own talent was recognized by other great writers. He landed stories in the pulp magazines, but Truman Capote picked one off the slush pile for Mademoiselle magazine, and Christopher Isherwood, who met him at a bookstore, wrote one of his earliest and most glowing reviews. Bradbury lived a long time, until 2012, by which time he had won every prize and reached every publishing milestone one could imagine. He was a giant of the 20th century, one of the genre writers who used the taste for popular fiction as kind of a springboard, an audience that didn't know just what it was getting, maybe. Or maybe it did. And above all, he kept writing. Soon he was famous and in demand. He worked on the screenplay for Moby Dick. He was a giant. Fahrenheit 451 is his true legacy, but there are other books and stories too. I just discovered one for the first time that I liked quite a bit, which our guest... The amazing Carolyn Cohagen and I will talk about after this. Okay, joining me now is Carolyn Cohagen, author of The Lost Children and the first two books in her Time Zero trilogy, Time Zero and Time Next. Carolyn joins us from New York City. Carolyn Cohagen, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. So a lot to talk about today. I read on your website that you started your career as a stand-up comic. And I'm I interested did. in how how did you get started doing that? Well, uh, I went to college uh, here in New York, Barnard. So um, I was, you know, kind of, I don't say already in the big city. Um, I did a lot of improv. Mm-hmm. I was in an improv group the whole four years uh, that I was at Columbia. And it was really a, a highlight of, of college for me. Right. Uh, we, you know, rehearsed twice a week, every week, my whole four years. And in some ways, I think that that's what spoiled me for regular acting was, mm. you know, making mm-hmm. up, making up my own lines. Yeah. Uh, and I'd, I'd done improv in middle school and high school. After I graduated, uh, you know, I just couldn't find that same experience with another improv group. I think improv is really built for college. I think mm. that you know, having a regular crowd that comes to see you and right. uh, <laughs> people good, with the time to, to spare for a, a night at the improv. I agree. And also they're, um, they're pretty savvy college students. They really want to throw things at you from the news. Whereas when you go to a, a comedy club for improv, they tend to always <laughs> give you the location of the bathroom and, <laughs> um, right. you know, the object is always, you know, a condom, you know, it's just, it's, yeah. it's and, and it's just not as fun. <laughs> so uh, I, I started to get really interested in stand-up, and the the thing that's really appealing about it now, I mean, I can look back as a writer, is that you really have total control over what you're writing about and what you're talking about. Yes. You know, you really talk about the most mundane things. You can talk about, you know, losing your socks in the laundry, or um, you can talk about daily politics. You know, uh, and it's up to you every single day. You know, on the subway on the way to the gig to decide what do I feel like talking about today. And I really loved that. You know, I, I loved that um, control over it. And I really loved that it was a and is a meritocracy. You know, you're really learning a skill and you're getting better and better at it the more you do. 
and your learning rhythm. And, you know, you learn so much about language and, and the construction of sentences and language by doing it. And by doing it in front of a live audience, there's really nothing like it. Yeah. I'm fascinated by stand-up comedy. And I all of the stand-up comics that I listen to, they mention that when they talk about why they love doing stand-up and why they can't stop doing it, even if they've had success on a television show or something else. They can't find another endeavor where you get that immediate truthful feedback that the laugh is the laugh and mm -hmm. if you either get it or you don't or maybe you get sort of a a thoughtful murmur or something but in in any case there's nothing like a live audience and i'm sure that must have been an adjustment for you when you started writing novels of uh that might be you know weeks or months or years before you get that kind of reaction. And even when you get it, it's not the same as listening to an audience laugh. How was that adjustment when you started writing novels? Well, it was um, it was a more uh, subtle transition than going straight from stand-up into writing novels. Mm -hmm. uh, I went from stand-up into theater and one-person shows. So I didn't ever make a conscious decision, actually, to say, I'm not going to do stand-up anymore. Uh, I loved doing it, and I loved performing, and I loved the writing of it. But at some stage, I really realized that um, I wanted to... I wanted to push myself a little bit more. I wanted to do more storytelling mm -hmm. and I was really doing just kind of joke, 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 joke that they weren't really connected in any way. And the best comments are the ones that they're, it feels like they're just telling you this long story, you know, and it might mm -hmm. just be like, you know, I left the house and I was, I'm just going to the, you know, the doctor's office, but they managed to tell you a hundred jokes about that journey, you know, right, and you don't, right. even, you don't even notice, you know, that the, the framework. And, uh, I was interested in, in, in longer form storytelling. And I also had this feeling that, um, I could be better at playing characters and mm. I would write characters into my jokes, you know, uh, having this feeling like, Oh, I'll get up there on stage and I'll just be able to do it. You know, I'll be able to do that voice or create the physicality to, you know, become my aunt at the dinner table or whatever. But I would kind of freeze when I got up there and I would end up just sort of standing and holding the mic, but I knew somehow inside of me, I, I knew it was there. And so mm. I decided to go to theater school. Actually, I went to this theater school in Paris called the Ecole Lecoq. And it's, um, a very sort of old school European tradition theater school where you study mask and you do physical theater and you study ensemble creation. Mm. So you are creating theater from scratch every single week. You would get an assignment on Monday. You have to have, you know, this piece of theater by Friday. Right. Now, when you were there, were you thinking these I'm developing skills that I'm planning to use when I return to my stand up or were you already thinking you were kind of moving on? I was thinking, well, I actually was doing stand up in Paris at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I would still go and perform. And um, I was thinking I'm going to use this in my stand up. But I was all I was sort of moving on to this idea of a one person show. Mm hmm. So, um, like I said, this sort of long form storytelling and the big difference there was that in standup, you need a joke line, like every 20 to 30 seconds and to, to move into the theater meant I could tell a story and, you know, it, it could still be funny, but you know, maybe I just need a joke every minute, <laughs> every minute and a half, which I know still sounds like a lot, but you know, cut in half. Yeah. So I was telling more personal stories and I think in my first show, I took a show to the Edinburgh Festival. I think I played 26 characters. 
Right. Wow. You know, so I really was learning uh, how to do that physicality. I mean, I really took away what I what I wanted to. And it's funny because even now as a writer, I remember all this, the physical stuff that I learned at that theater school. And sometimes if you watch me writing, I will be physicalizing. I'll be thinking, okay, what, what is this person? What kind of animal are they? Are they you know, like a, they're a turtle? Are they a cow? Um, yeah. I'll be thinking, I do this with kids too. I'll go outside and, and we'll do a physical motion and I'll say, what is this in the world? You know, and they'll say, it's a firecracker, you know, it's an explosion, it's water, you know, and all these different things to say like, okay, so did the principal burst out of her office like a firecracker? You know, or did she burst out, you know, or was she a turtle creeping out of her shell, you know? So mm. for me, theater school is, it's always there, you know, and I, yeah. I use it, you know, sitting at the computer all day. It seems like it was perfect training for someone who's writing fiction, because in writing fiction, you always have to channel different voices when you're, mm -hmm. you know, for dialogue and that kind of thing. But you also have to channel a lot of movements and you know, uh, I, some physicality. Yeah, I had a uh, an author who joined us, uh, Margot Livesey, and she was talking about how in her first drafts, all of her characters do, and I think it was three things, and it was they nod, they smile, and they drink a cup of coffee, you know, or something like that. I so. love that. And you know what? <laughs> because I listened to your podcast, I bought her book. Oh, right. Oh, good. And I haven't finished it yet, but I'm really enjoying it. And I really enjoyed her saying that. And I thought that's so true. And I do that, too. And she said that in a first draft, also, you, your characters just all you describe them hair and eye color. Mm hmm. You know, like that's how right. you differentiate. And I thought, yeah, that's kind of true <laughs> in your first draft. Are they tall? Are they short? Are they thin? You know, what, what you know, these really basic yeah. odd strokes, you know, and then you have to kind of, for me, I have to go back. It's in the layering that I, you know, get more specific and, and make them more real people. Right. And then when you turn to writing novels, you also seem to have scratched an itch that you had to uh, invent worlds. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that that wasn't part of your stand-up maybe it was part of your theatrical experience or well was that the theatrical new? thing i think was also this idea that you know we were um devising theater from nothing and mm -hmm. um using very little on stage and it was very very fun for me to have these sort of assignments that were um okay with eight people you have a stage that's you know six feet by four feet create the biggest space possible mm-hmm and watching people create, you know, um, an entire James Bond chase sequence or uh, our group did, I think, a, a knight going into a castle and confronting a dragon and using scale, you oh, know, right. changing scale constantly to create the different illusions to make that space seem huge. Right. Uh, and then small. So that was always very interesting to me. You know, the idea of how do you use theatrical space in all these different ways. Julie Taymor. Uh, who directed oh, the Lion yeah. King? She yeah. she went to uh, the Ecola Cox. She went to the same school that that I'm talking about. You know, so she would really play with that. The idea, of, like the when the actors would hold up the grass, you know, mm -hmm. on their heads, and then a small lion would go across, you know, and then you know, and then a big lion come out. Yeah. So I went from theater, and then I, I wrote a couple one person shows, and then uh, created a theater company with several friends who had gone to the same school, and we toured that for a while, and. What was interesting was I then wrote this one show just for myself that I had a, just had the best time researching and writing and a friend directed it and we had such a great time creating the set and working together. And then I went to perform it 
And after the first night, maybe the second, I was like, well, that was fun. I'm done. Like I, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't have the desire to keep performing that show for the next year or two or three, which honestly is what you need to, um, you know, make that kind of show really sing. Right. right, right. Uh, for my first show, it took years, you know, for it to go from kind of a three star, star to a four star to a five star show, you know, was to keep refining it. And I realized I, I didn't really want to do that, that the writing to me was becoming more interesting to the, the creating of the world. And then I got interested in film. Hmm. You didn't know exactly the long question you were asking, did you? <laughs> I, got, I got very interested in film. And, but I, I, well, let's say I had always been interested in film. But as long as I wanted to act, that felt, it, in some ways, it kind of held me back from pursuing film. Because as long as I was doing theater, I felt like I was always creating my own opportunities to perform. Right. Anyway, at some point when I, I realized I didn't absolutely have to be performing all the time. So I, I started to write screenplays and I, I worked for several different film uh, festivals, mm -hmm. which is great because uh, they had slam dance had a film a screenplay competition. They had a screenplay competition and I worked for that competition reading screenplays and I think actually the book we were just discussing, I, I believe she has a really nice metaphor about you don't learn to be a mechanic by looking at engines that work. Right. You learn so much about timing and story structure by reading hundreds of bad screenplays. Right, right. You, you, that whole thing of like, oh, you know, something should happen by page 20 and, you know, we should really know what's, you know, what the story is going to be about and the, when the first act should and and you just realize when you're reading them instinctively you're you think gosh what's this story about and you look down and hey it's page 20 there's just like an internal rhythm yeah you know yeah because you you want to be new and you want to be original and so the temptation is to say well i'm going to break a few rules here mm -hmm. but then when you see Reading bad screenplays, I would imagine, would help you understand what rules to break and when and, and which rules yeah. are better off. You're better off kind of following because of the the viewer's expectations. Absolutely. And, you know, you you learn so much looking at something and saying, I know this is bad, but why? Yeah. You know, right, right. For anyone listening, I mean, if, I don't know how much your listeners are uh, trying to do screenwriting or television writing, but the Breaking Bad pilot is so oh. brilliant. Oh. And Vince Gilligan, and you can find it online. Vince Gilligan breaks rules, mm -hmm. right? In that, like in his action, he describes, you know, some internal motivation, which is not usually done, right? In in the action. You know, you're not supposed to say what's going on in someone's head yeah. in a screenplay. And he uses kind of more beautiful language than is necessary. He uses metaphors. You know, he uses stuff that you're not supposed to do in television writing, but it's so good, right. right? It's so fantastic and it's so fun to read. And you're like, yeah, well, when you're really good, you break the rules and people are thrilled. Yeah, yeah. But he also is probably one of the most uh, attuned to an audience as well, that he, he, he gives the audience their pleasures as well. You know, it's very, mm -hmm. it's a very rich experience. It doesn't feel like he's breaking rules for the sake of breaking them or um, he's not holding back. No, he never holds back. And I think that, you know, just even I'm saying like in his rules of, of how to write a teleplay, mm -hmm. you know, y y you're I supposed see. to write, you're supposed to write that Walt 
you know, has a creased face or, you know, that he looks angry. You're not supposed to say Walt thinks about putting on his pants, but changes his mind. <laughs> right. right. Because we don't know what Walt's thinking. Yeah. Right. And, and again, usually like a, a metaphor in there would be lost because the audience is never going to hear that metaphor if it's just written in the action between dialogue. But does it just for the joy of the reader of that teleplay? Right, right. And to, to maybe absorb something for the people who are making the show. I know Vince Gilligan was an English major. I wonder if he read Tennessee Williams. I was always struck by how Tennessee mm. Williams seemed to have more going on in his stage directions and in his parentheticals in his plays than almost as if he was intending for them to be read or if that was the way he communicated exactly the tone he was going for or the psychology that he wanted everyone to understand. It's funny. Sometimes I wonder when I'm writing, like when I go back and look at my drafts, I worry sometimes that I overdirect mm. <laughs> as a writer. <laughs> There's a theater, you know, the theater director in me or whatever that I, am I giving my characters too much business? You know, am I giving them a physical right. action with every word of dialogue, which is not really, you know, I think, oh, let the reader do it. You know, yeah. like they, they're, they're picturing this scene they imagine that, you know, this character is shrugging, this person's raising an eyebrow, you know, this person's getting, you know, I don't yep. need to fill it all in. Yeah. You know? So how do you solve that problem? Do you just write it all out and then try to address it in the editing where you can see what you can cross out and where you need to maybe beef it up? Or do you have yeah. sort of a rule of thumb that you can follow? I think I'm getting better at it the more books I write. You know, the more mm. experience mm -hmm. I have, I think that my first drafts are getting tighter. I tend to see my own mistakes the first time. Mm -hmm. Or I hope that's true. Uh, but usually, yeah, it's in it's in subsequent drafts that I go back and I'm trying to follow the rules of, you know, get rid of any word that's absolutely not necessary. Right. So going back and saying, okay, you know, and of course, try to avoid any adverbs. And I try to be very, very strict about that, but really saying like, okay, it's really important that you know that she is saying this, you know, in an angry way or in a sarcastic way, because I feel that the reader might not realize that otherwise. And when you get it just right, you know, an author like Tolstoy, it almost, it just kind of brings the whole thing to life. And the reader stops noticing the interruptions, but there's, you know, when you, you sort of have neither too much nor too little, but it, it just animates the whole narrative and you just go along as if you're right there in the room with these people watching them as they're, you know, eating their dinner or drinking their tea or attending the ball or whatever it is. It really is fiction at its best. Well, it's getting out of the way, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And I think it takes a while as a writer to really learn that you want to get out of the way. Right. Yeah. That you're not there to be the, uh, the voiceover narration all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Especially when you're writing, sorry, when you're reading a book that's really beautifully written and you really are enjoying the turns of phrase and you're really enjoying the metaphors, you think, oh, this is, this is what I want to do. And this is what I want to be, you know, all of these things that you think the best thing to aspire to, uh, is the most beautiful language, right? So it can be hard to get out of your own way. Right. And especially, and I want to bring this back to your writing, because it seems like this would be especially true when you're creating these imaginary worlds, that if a, if a narrator is, you know, anything that distracts the reader and breaks them out of the 
spell that you're casting or the dream that you're creating for them seems like it would be very unwelcome and and probably kind of grind things to a halt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Anything that feels, um, I don't know, too artificial or if I feel like if you make them so aware that you are an author, you know, making up a new vernacular or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, yeah, making up new technology or whatever it is, right? You're just, it's like you said, it's like you're just trying to be smooth and, and make it, um, natural. And yeah, I feel like it can be, it can be tough. Yeah. And yet you have to do, you have to get enough exposition in there that people are, aren't totally confused and they're not reaching page 100 and saying, I don't even understand what right. this place is or what why is these people world? are trying to do this. And yeah. <laughs> and I used, I think I, when I started off, I, I erred on the side of uh, being too conservative. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had readers with the lost children saying, I want to know more about this world. Yeah. I want to know what uh, tell me more about what it looked like. Right. And you know, what so, are the trees? What are the flowers? You know, everything. And so then in the Time Zero trilogy, I'll just fill in the readers if they're not familiar. There is a futuristic Manhattan that's ruled by extremists. And uh, girls, in the first book, girls aren't allowed to get an education there. And this is this is sort of a, I'll, I'll try to get this question out in a in a way that makes sense. It might be hard for you to answer or impossible. Maybe it's a bad question, but you can tell me that. I could imagine you starting in a couple of ways. One might be where you start out with this idea of the Manhattan ruled by extremists. And then along the way, you kind of come to the idea of, oh, what would it be like if girls weren't allowed to get an education uh, and what would that mean for my protagonist uh, in particular or some of the other people in the book? Or the alternative might be you might start out and say, I love books about uh, futuristic worlds and I love, uh, you know, education is very important to me and I'm interested in the idea is particularly of girls who are told that they're not good at certain subjects and that kind of thing. So why don't I create a world that will fit my interest of uh, exploring themes of girls in education. So you sort of have the Mm -hmm. theme before you have the world. Are you able Mm -hmm. to isolate which of those comes first? I have had different experiences, actually. Mm. And I I know exactly what you mean by the question. Mm -hmm. Also, because I teach and um, I teach young people and I do a lot of different exercises like if I have a camp, it's one week every day, it'll be, let's start a story from a different place. You know, sometimes, cause I feel like that, you know, usually people think you start with plot, maybe with character. And then sometimes I'll say, let's start with a first line. You uh-huh. know, I'll give them a first line from a different, from a, from a, from a famous book or short story. Sometimes I'll give them the last line, which is always very interesting. Um, and then sometimes I give them an emotion or a feeling and with the lost children, um, just sort of to, just to complete how I got into novel writing, it started as a treatment for a mm, screenplay. Right. Uh, and a treatment for listeners who may not know is a synopsis of a screenplay that you write in prose. And I found that I was just really enjoying writing prose and right. I didn't want to stop. And with that, 
particular story, I had been writing a lot of things that were very, um, very much uh, real. They were very realistic. They were very much about someone just like me, my age and a situation like mine. And frankly, they were very boring. Uh, I didn't, I just didn't have that much to say about my own situation at the time. Or I had explored it all through theater, who knows. And at some point I thought, you know, this isn't really what I love to read. And uh, it's not the tone that's my favorite tone. So I started with a tone for The Lost Children. Mm. I really started with like a mm-hmm. once upon a time, which eventually I got rid of. But I really started with the line once upon a time. Right. And I wanted to do a very dark fairy tale. And I had no idea where it was going to go. And the first line, I believe, was once upon a time, there was a woman who couldn't have children. Mm. And in that version of the book, it was it started off about a woman named Josephine who couldn't have children. And this and she lives out in the middle of nowhere with this kind of um, uncaring husband. And one day this small boy shows up on her lawn and she has no idea where he came from and he doesn't speak and he's very odd and she spends the afternoon with him and then he just disappears just as quickly and that's like two chapters and i thought who what is this weirdest craziest explanation i can think of for that little boy who might he be and i was very open to like you know it being magical realism, you know, to the supernatural. Like I was like, I don't, who was he going to be? Cause the tone was already very strange and absurd. And when I came up with the answer, which was the craziest answer I could really think of for the end and the answer for who that little boy was, I thought, okay, that's the end. Now I have to write towards it. Hmm. I have no idea how I'm going to get there, but I know that's the end that I want. Yeah. So I see where my question was deficient because I kind of posed it to you as, you know, do you do you say I want my book to be about X, where X is a world, or do I want my book to be about Y, where Y is sort of a theme? And instead, it sounds like what you're doing as your approach is to say, I want my book to be like Z, like to feel like Z, and I want to spend time in this kind of mood or or exploring this kind of of atmosphere or tone. That's certainly, I, I think that's a good explanation. And that's how the lost children worked. Yeah. Okay. For time zero, you are correct in the way that you described. Uh, I can't remember now if it was y, X or Y. <laughs> yeah. That, the world uh, or I, the theme. You, but you, you, yeah, you had, uh, you had a very good description earlier about the way that I came up with time zero, which was much more of a, what if, fundamentalists took over Manhattan. Mm, mm-hmm. And from there, I very quickly went to, because for me, the idea of fundamentalism and extremism very quickly went to girls not being able to get an education and girls not being able to read. Uh, I came up with the idea in 2010 and I was definitely very interested in doing something dystopian. I was interested in doing something young adult for you know a, an older age group than I had done before. I still definitely wanted to do more world building. And as soon as I had the idea for this, you know, 15 year old girl living in a Manhattan where she wasn't able to read or get an education, the first act of the novel came to me very, very quickly. Mm. You know, I knew, I knew 
what I wanted that to be. And I knew as well that I wanted to explore various forms of fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. So I guess the answer that to that would be theme, right? Right. And I should uh, mention, we, we, I didn't mention this when we were talking about your background and your career, is that you're the founder of an organization called Girls with Pens. Yes. So, and that, I take it that that is uh, specifically designed for creative writing for girls. Mm-hmm. Is that? It is. Yeah. And it's uh, young adults? It is girls 8 to 14. Right. Right. So it seems like that's a, an issue that you would have had on your mind and, and would have had a lot of interest in when you set out to write Time Zero. Well, it's interesting. It actually sort of happened in the reverse order. Oh, I, right. Right. Okay. Yeah, I started Time Zero in 2010, and I founded Girls with Pens in 2014 when I moved back to my hometown of Austin. Mm. And I had done my master's in writing at USC, and I I did the master's because I was interested in teaching. And I was really trying to find, you know, the ideal teaching job and who did I want to be working with. And because I had been doing so much research, about girls hmm. and you know, girls in education. And I had spent so much time in that space that at some point I just realized that that was really the group I wanted to be working with. Right. Uh, and how how is the group doing? It's terrific. I love it. I oh, mean, I really, I, I really feel like I, I did create my, you know, my dream job and my, my dream organization. I specifically wanted to create an organization and, a, and, a, and an environment that would be for girls in that really like sticky, icky middle school time <laughs> when they start to lose their voices, right. you know, that they go, yep. you know, they can be so confident in elementary school and then they hit, well, what I always thought was sixth, seventh and eighth grade. And now I have learned is fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, mm. when they lose their confidence and they start to feel like, oh, you know, who's the most popular? Maybe I should be like that. And maybe I should talk like that and dress like that oh, yeah. and, or recede into the corner. And you know what? I think it's, you know, just like um, stand up, being popular doesn't make you a good writer, mm-hmm. you know? And a lot of times it is, you know, the strangest girl in the corner that's going to be the most fantastic writer. Right. And I've had so many conversations with grown women about their time in middle school and everyone has a story. Yeah. And if they don't have a story, it means they were the mean girl. Right. And talking to them and and talking about how freeing it would have been for someone to come in and say, be weird, be crazy, be strange, you know, the weirder, the better. Yeah. And Be- just having that permission. It, it seems like, you know, a lot of times we just sort of say when you're in college or when you're 25, you'll realize how silly all this was and how how everyone was focused on the wrong things. And you'll realize what's important and you'll you know, it'll it'll be a much better experience for you. And for one thing, that's giving up on a lot of, you know, really valuable years for these girls. But also these effects linger and they carry forward. And it's not just middle school or high school where it affects them, but it can kind of set the path for people uh, throughout life. It really does. I mean, and and that's the thing that's crazy, as I'm saying, is that like to say this to any woman and even women that I've just met, 
will have, no matter what woman I meet, they will have a story that is still painful to them. Yeah. And as you said, to just kind of blow the kids off and say, you'll laugh about it one day is not accurate, right? you know, and, and again, doesn't give them a voice. And, you know, you think what all can creative writing do for this? I think it's important not only let them know that they have an outlet, but of course, just like all good speculative fiction, you know, we, we, you and I have already talked a little bit about Ray Bradbury, but that there's so much that you put into fiction, yeah, you know, and sometimes they don't know how to voice what's actually going on in their real life. Right. So for you to say, oh, I want you to write an essay about, you know, what was hard in school this week or tell me about your friends and who's nice or not nice or, you know, all that, that kind of stuff doesn't necessarily work. But yeah. to ask them to write a story about you go to school tomorrow and something at school is dramatically different, but no one notices but you. Hmm. And the dramatically different thing can be, you know, the principal is an alligator, you know, or everyone has gills or whatever it is. But for me, that gets to a real feeling in middle school, right? Which is, yeah. wait, everybody likes Justin Bieber and we love it and we talk about it all the time. And then one day you go and you say something about Justin Bieber and everyone says, ah, babies like Justin Bieber. Right. Who are, who are you? Yeah. You know, we don't want to be friends with you anymore. And yeah. you're like, wait, because the world is turned upside down. Yeah. You don't, and, and what you can't you, keep up with the rules. Exactly. And what you think after that is, it's better for me not to say anything. Yeah. Because I will inevitably mess something up. Mm -hmm. And of course, you don't have the confidence to say, well, whatever, I still like him. You know, that's, exactly. that's just not yeah. a possibility. <laughs> yeah. You know, I saw this when I was, uh, I taught for a while in Taiwan, and I taught a bunch of students who were under a lot of pressure to succeed in exams. And their education was really, it was really sort of a cram school. And then they would, their parents would hire tutors after school. And it was, you know, and they really were not given a lot of outlets for creativity. And my cousin was teaching there already. And, and as teachers of English, you know, we could ask the students to write stories because it was a good way to practice their English. And these students would write, you know, hundreds of pages and they would just unspool these these incredibly creative and, and vivid uh, worlds. And you could see them needing that outlet. And, you know, I'm guessing that you've probably seen something similar in some of the uh, girls with pens students that you've worked with that you you don't realize how much they need it until you see uh, you know it's like you don't realize how thirsty someone is until you watch them drink a gallon of water kind of thing yes yes and it's interesting you say that about the students uh, who are under a lot of pressure because I've had students that I've tutored where the parents are yeah very concerned about their English uh, their essays the testing and they bring me in, and, and I think that the students are doing this brilliant work uh, to, you know, writing these long stories. They've never been able to do it before. I see them improving and really just growing as people. And then the, the parents will come in and say, I don't see the improvement. They can't 
see, it's not like a, a, a measurable uh, talent to them, uh, a creative writing story. Right. So for them, it's like, well, how is it going to help on the test? Yeah. So they might ask me to switch over to, you know, teaching SAT essay questions. Right. And of course that breaks my heart. Yeah. Because there there are lots of people that teach that. There are hundreds and hundreds of people that teach that. And listen, God bless them. But it's not what I do. And I think that there are so few opportunities for creative writing for young people that I, I just think, you know, that parents need to jump on board whenever they have it. Right. And and they're they're discounting the idea that what's really going to serve their child the best is to be balanced and on a steady course and to just be to, to be able to survive life as much as to, mm-hmm. you know, to be ready for the next test. Well, and I've also tried to really convey the idea that if you have written stories and you have tried yourself to write metaphors and powerful characters and characters with a character arc and you understand what a character arc is that when you get in high school and your teachers are asking you to dissect a novel, Mm, right. You, you know, what's going on, you know, you, you know what the, you know, you, you recognize the metaphors, you understand what the symbolism is, you know, it's, you approach in a whole different way when you've written. I wish I had been able to do more creative writing in middle school. I think that high school, reading and comprehension would have been a whole, you know, on a whole different level. Right. Okay. So let's talk about some of your favorite authors and let's go straight to Ray Bradbury, who I asked you to mention a few. You had mentioned Roald Dahl. I could definitely see where that uh, would fit in here as well. But since we're a little short on time, let's go to Ray Bradbury. And I'm interested in when you discovered Ray Bradbury and what about Ray Bradbury's works appealed to you? Well, he will always be near and dear to my heart because my father gave me Fahrenheit 451 mm. when I was in fifth grade. Mm-hmm. So it was the first real dystopian book that I read. Yeah. And it was very powerful. And I remember really enjoying speaking with my father about it. That, you know, that we were having sort of a real discussion about a real book. And my father loved sci-fi and, and, and loved dystopian in general. So I think it was exciting for him Mm -hmm. that I was at a place where I could read something adult. Yeah. And, And I just revisited it. And what's fascinating to me is that there's so much, um, going on on a psychological level. And I didn't really remember. I mean, in my head, because I was young, I was like, oh, I really remember, you know, plot. Right. But I mean, first of all, Ray Bradbury is just this beautiful writer. Yeah. But there's so much going on in Monog's head that's, like I said, very, very psychological. And I don't remember, you know, as a kid, I, I don't remember being put off by that or confused or... Right. I was so taken in by the idea of this alternate world and this world where you know there were three possibly four walls of television the shell in the ear you know all of this future tech was so cool and exciting to me and of course the creepiness of it all the hound the hound is terrifying yeah i think a lot of people who set out to write these books probably 
kind of miss that or or maybe that's not where their skills lie. They might be so interested in the tech or the the features of the world or just the conceit of the fantasy world or the science fiction world mm-hmm. that they miss what a Ray Bradbury has or a Kurt Vonnegut has or even a Stephen King or you know that they're that they're really insightful into the people who are navigating these worlds and the psychology of the the way these worlds impact the psychology of the characters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you also selected his short story, All Summer in a Day, which I had yes. not read before. But that story, which is easily available online, and it does not take long to read, but it's absolutely incredible. I it's just, a killer, right? It really is. So I'll, I, I don't want to spoil it, but I will say that it takes place on Venus, where it's been raining for seven years, and a group of nine-year-olds can't recall the sun except for one girl who moved to Venus from Earth when she was five, and the others don't believe her account of the sun. And then the sun comes out. I, we could we could keep going. I could issue a spoiler alert, and people <laughs> could. Uh, but it's just devastating, and it, it really... Uh, I mean, what appeals to you about the story? Well, it's something that I only discovered recently uh, as well, and... The first time I read it, I kind of hated the ending, mm, which mm-hmm. um, is, you know, again, without doing a big spoiler, I can't say that it's cliffhanger. It's just a little, it's just kind of unresolved. It is not a happy ending. It it doesn't let any of the characters off of the hook. Right. So the emotional impact of the story, it kind of gives you this emotional, you know, kick in the stomach and then it ends. Yeah. And, you know, the first, when I read it, I thought, well, I don't really like that very much. It doesn't um, wrap things up. It doesn't put a bow on no, anything. It no. doesn't. Yeah. But yet it's so, it feels so truthful. But then again, yeah, <laughs> like you said, after I kind of got over that, it's so truthful and the emotion is so strong besides the fact that it is just beautifully written and he's writing about rain over and over and over again. And he manages not to say the word rain over and over, right? He right. finds the most beautiful metaphors for rain you can imagine. Yeah. And I, I teach using the short story and I'll, I'll talk to my students and say, you know, what, what emotion did you feel when this story was over? Because I think that they're usually pretty amazed that there's no bow on this story and even mad at me that I made them read it. They will give me all of their descriptions, you know, of of how they felt. And the big one for me, and it's the reason I like it for middle schoolers is for me, it brings up an incredibly strong feeling of being left out. Yeah. Of of missing out. Right. Right. And and it's so exaggerated. Right. And I said, and I I talked about like, okay, we're today, you know, we're going to write a story today, starting with an emotion. You know, and imagine that you want to elicit from your reader an incredibly strong emotion. So you're going to start with a memory you have, a feeling, but I want you to exaggerate it times a thousand the way that Ray Bradbury exaggerated the feeling of missing out. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I love the feel. I love the idea. I mean, I, I don't know his motivation for this story, but I love the idea of having a feeling and wanting to convey it and that that's what speculative fiction can do. You know, that it's not just, oh, hey, um, I was going to go to the park today and have a nice picnic with my family, but it rained. How disappointing. 
but that you are in Venus and it rains for seven years right. and you only have three hours of sun. Yeah. You know, um, that, you know, that you can just kick things into high gear. Yeah. But it doesn't then say, you know, so they all developed gills and their skin was very wrinkled, but, they, right. but you know, but he introduces, well, what if there was a person who had seen the sun? And yeah. what would that be like? And would they even believe her, especially at this age? And mm -hmm. what would it mean for her to, could she stand up as an individual and, and stand up to the group? And how badly would they hate her for having this knowledge? Right. And I think it's not a slur because it's, you know, right on the first page is that, yeah, all these children have been living on Venus all this time. And most of them have never seen the sun, but this one girl has because she recently moved from Earth. And she's the subject of bullying. Yeah. They're not nice to her. So also that idea is very complex yeah. and it's complex for, for children to read that idea of, well, wait, you know, why is it that because I've experienced something through no fault of my own or benefit, you know, right. that, um, that, that people are going to be angry or cruel to me. Right. And is the alternative to give in and do something that you know is wrong. I mean, she's, she's the one who's right. She's the one mm -hmm. who has seen the sun. And yet it would be easier in a lot of ways to just say, oh, you're right. I was mistaken. And, and here's, you know, let me just sit over here in the corner and be quiet and let you guys talk about what the sun must be like. So, yeah, I think also that idea to be able to write about sort of injustice in such a way. Yeah. <laughs> in such a kind of, and the story's what, like five pages long, four pages. It's very, it's very short, you know, but to get all that emotion. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, something okay. packs it punch, yeah. So I have a surprise bonus question for you. Oh. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> okay. After an evening spent watching the news, you dream that you are attending a book burning. Still in a fog, you make your way to a diner for breakfast where a kindly gentleman is waiting for you. It's Ray Bradbury. <laughs> Hello, he says. Don't worry, you're still alive. You're just on hiatus for one day. They sent me because you are also a creator of fantastical worlds. So here's what we can do. We can either spend a day in a world that I've created, and you can ask me all the questions you'd like, or we can spend a day in a world that you've created, and you can explain everything to me. Which world would you choose to inhabit for the day, and why? Oh, well, it would definitely be one of his. <laughs> And I would definitely be asking him questions. I I don't know that I could say specifically which one of his, but yeah. I I feel like even though they're dystopian. Well, he's such I know, and that sounds terrible. <laughs> I mean, would all my questions have to be about his world, or could I ask about his writing and why he wrote things a certain way? I think that's what you'd probably end up asking him. Because right? that's what I would want to know. I, I just yeah. feel like. Um, Why did you put this was, here? Why did you make this like that? He was such a like wise that? man. And, yeah. and, you know, if you read about the rewrites he did on Fahrenheit 451, because he expanded it from his original short story. It was like 25,000 words. And then he made it 50. And he's written about the changes he made and why. Mm -hmm. And I find it very fascinating. You know, what um, he had to, he sort of expanded Clarissa at the beginning you know, the young girl at the beginning. And he also expanded uh, Beatty, the the firefighter, mm -hmm. boss, just all sorts of different things. Oh, and he talked about um, how he sees himself as the old professor mm. 
who helps him and is whispering in his ear. Yeah. Because he sees, uh, so he said he saw himself, I guess as a writer, he was whispering in people's ears, but that ultimately he was a coward, that he wasn't brave. You know, he wasn't getting up and, I don't know, waving a sword at the injustices he saw in the world, that writing was his way of protesting and that he saw that as whispering in people's ears. And I, I just love that. Yeah. And he was coming out of that era in Fahrenheit 451, coming out of the McCarthy era mm-hmm. and and feeling, having lived through World War II and the book burnings there, uh, feeling like um, this would be, uh, I guess I'm going to play a clip at the beginning of the show. Actually, I have this great interview with him where he's talking about how he came to write the story The Pedestrian and how The Pedestrian then, after he had published the story, he had this vision of The Pedestrian walking down the street and encountering this little girl and the girl saying, sniffing the air and then saying, I know who you are. You're the one who burns the books. Mm-hmm. And him kind of thinking about, he had also been thinking about firemen and how eventually if houses were all fireproof, there'd be, you know, what would firemen have to do? And he said, I know they'd, they'd be running around starting fires. And so it all sort of came together in this idea, but it is, it's such a great book. It's so much fun to read. And I could imagine uh, for someone in your position, it would be a lot of fun to be walking through a world like that with Ray Bradbury and and asking him, you know, hey, did you ever think about putting this character doing that, or why did you, why did you have this person here at this time, and um, and getting a real peek under the hood, so to speak. Well, and I mean, to be totally honest, I would want to say, like, how would you write about Trump? You know, <laughs> it already feels so surreal yeah. in so many ways. But this idea of, because I believe Bradbury died in, you know, 2012, but this idea of, you know, I'm writing dystopian right now. And, yeah. you know, you think about uh, Arthur Miller writing The Crucible yeah. during the years. And you're like, oh, it's just parable and students read it now. And they go, oh, this is about McCarthy, you know? Right. Sort or of... uh, a Philip Roth's book about the plot against America and, and you know, oh, what, what would happen if this happened here? Yeah. Uh, and to think uh, reality has sort of outpaced him. Well, and that's that's how I feel right now. And in a lot of ways with, with Time Zero. And yeah, and, and being here right now and, and doing my research and walking around the city and yeah, and trying to look forward and, you know, and Bradbury says that about dystopian, you know, and trying to, that it's always, um, you find that it catches up to you so quickly. Yeah. The future, the future is now, you know, it catches up to you very quickly. And so trying to decide, you know, what themes, I guess it's about what themes are universal that, that the writing about stays relevant no matter when it's read. Right. Well, we will look forward to uh, installment three in the trilogy and how you tackle that problem and solve it. Carolyn Cohagen, thank you very much for joining me today on the History of Literature. Thank you. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Wasn't that wonderful? My thanks to Carolyn Cohagen for joining me and to all of you 
I hope you are writing for those of you who have that inclination. Keep going. Keep looking for that voice, for that outlet. We want to hear what you have to say, especially for those of you sitting in the corner who have ideas, who want to express them, and who maybe don't get to say them out loud. Those of you who are drowned out by the crowd, the quiet people, go home, imagine your fantastical world, pull out your roll of butcher paper, and take out that pen. And write and write and write and tell us all about it. We'll love to hear from you. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.